There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Does the evidence outrule the possibility that she was attracted to the defendant and was open to meeting someone and being with someone? You have to look at the way she was dressed. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle and the quote you just heard there was from a court report of a case where a 27-year-old man was this week found not guilty of raping a 17-year-old woman by a jury at the Central Criminal Court in Cork. It was a jury of eight men and four women. It took them one and a half hours of deliberation to reach their unanimous verdict and to acquit the man. It was a case that was dominated by the issue of consent And in her closing address to the jury, the female barrister told jurors that they should have regard for the underwear the complainant wore on the night. She suggested the complainant was, on the night, open to the possibility of being with someone and that the person she became attracted to ended up being the defendant. She said, does the evidence outrule the possibility that she was attracted to the defendant and was open to meeting someone and being with someone? You have to look at the way she was dressed. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. So, she was wearing a thong with a lace front, the implication being that that somehow had anything to do with what she was looking for or what was she was thinking about going out that night. And the man was acquitted, we know, but I think it just brings into sharp relief this idea that in some way... Women, by what they wear, whether it's underwear or dresses or skirts, are somehow inviting various sexual behaviours. It's a more general point that I'm trying to make. And it's been something that blew up on Twitter this week. And I think it's just worth thinking about that in 2018, in a court, a woman's lace thong and Marks and Spencer's probably sells thousands of them every year, became a part of a rape case. And I just wanted to read out one tweet uh, sent by Carol Hunt in relation to this. Uh, Carol is the mother of a teenage daughter and she says, wondering if I should go through my daughter's knicker drawer and throw out all the scraps of lace that teens wear these days. Horrendous stuff. And I have to say, I agree. 
Another thing I wanted to tell you about is that I wrote an article uh, last week about a nine-year-old girl I had met who had just been voted on to her student council and she was delighted and looking forward to getting stuck into her mission. And her mission is that she's trying to get her school to allow girls to wear trousers because they're currently not part of the school uniform. Um, And she was amazing. It was like meeting a mini activist and she was really inspired actually by the Repeal the Eighth campaign and she was kind of saying to me, you know, we repealed the Eighth, we can repeal the skirts and the pinafores and she's even got slogans some of her slogans are no more pinafore and the other one is equal rights no tights so <laughs> she's adamant and um, I wrote the article I called her Gloria in the article even though that's not her real name I called her that after Gloria Steinem because I just thought that was a good one and she was basically telling me how in school in assembly the girls have to sit a certain way so that their knickers aren't on display which is one very annoying thing after school the boys will go in the monkey bars and hang up down the girls can't because again their underwear will be showing and so she was just explaining how it restricts them and how she just feels it's really really unfair Um, and to report then uh, Gloria took in the article she cut it out of the Irish Times she brought it into school last Monday morning and (laughs) apparently a lot of the teachers and and the principal had already read it and so I will come back and report to you how she gets on because her campaign is in train. It's very important. Uh, on a serious note, you know, that girls in Ireland should be able to wear trousers or skirts, have the choice to wear what they want. And hopefully there'll be no more pinafores and equal rights, no tights in that school. And I'll let you know what happens. Now, later on, you're going to hear some more from the International Safe World Summit. And it's my conversation that I had with Marion Keyes hosted by Safe Ireland. We um, called it This Charming Man after the book that Marion wrote uh, a few years ago that had a storyline with domestic violence in it. And in it, she sort of debunks a lot of the myths about the idea of who the perpetrator of domestic violence is. So you'll hear that later. But first... The Out of Silence report on women's mental health in Ireland was published this week, documenting for the first time the specific mental health needs of women and girls in Ireland. It's based on interviews with 100 female patients at St. Patrick's University Hospital in Dublin. Orla O'Connor of the National Women's Council and St. Patrick's Mental Health Services Advocacy Manager Louise O'Leary spoke to Jennifer Ryan about it. Out of Silence, Women's Mental Health in Their Own Words is a report by the National Women's Council of Ireland and this study for the first time documents the specific mental health needs of women and girls. Orla O'Connor, can you tell me how this research was done? Yeah, hi Jennifer. I mean, the National Women's Council, we've launched this Out of Silence, which is what the report is called this week, on women's mental health. And as the National Women's Council, we have over 180 member organisations. So we were able to organise a series of conversations around the country with over, with 100 women, um, who came from, you know, all different backgrounds in terms of rural, urban. There were traveller women, there were minority ethnic women, there were women who were mothers who were single, there were older women. And you younger women. So a real, you know, cross section of women and to talk to them about their experiences of mental health. And I think, and it's why the report is called Out of Silence, is that, you know, for for many women, and this is something that, you know, featured f- for women across the diversity, really is the whole issue of their intersecting demands on women um, so that whether, you know, if, if you're a woman with children um, or if you're an old woman, there's a number of competing demands that it might be care responsibilities. It's also struggling maybe in terms of working in a low paid job or being in poverty. And, and it's the combination of that that is really affecting women's mental health. But women, women 
aren't given the opportunities to talk about their mental health because they tend to talk about the health of their families and of other people around them and not themselves. And that's why we're trying to make the issues around women's mental health much more visible, but from women's own words in the first instance. And Louise, just before we started recording, you were talking about a gender bias in research. Can you explain to me a little bit about that in the context of this report? Sure, absolutely. And first of all, I'd really like to congratulate Orla and the National Women's Council and especially Jenny and Kleena for the report because it's so valuable and so refreshing to see a report written by women about women with women's voices at the centre. There has been, especially in the last couple of years, a lot of attention drawn to what's seen as as a gender equity imbalance in research. So historically, um, research findings and design and things like that haven't had gender as as a key factor. So in terms of things like data being what we call disaggregated by gender or variables like gender-based violence being considered in relation to things like mental health um, difficulties in women. Um, so there there have been movements towards making it more equitable. There's there's guidelines called the Sager Guidelines, Sex and Gender Equity and Research Guidelines, which came out two years ago. And there's a big push to get things like editorial boards on, on journals and things like that more gender balanced. So um, this this research is also really important from that point of view to try and make a correction. It's to steal your phrase. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's perfectly fine. <laughs> um, so uh, among some of the findings, and it was what was used as the headline uh, on the study for this paper, is that the Irish suicide rate for girls is the highest in the EU. From your experience working at St. Patrick's, what's going on here? Well, I know um, any suicide and, and self-harm uh, stats are from any any time are very startling. Um, I suppose I can't really speak specifically to, to that stat. Um, in Patrick's, we'd certainly see a, a trend towards uh, more admissions of, of women than men. Uh, so we have a pattern of sort of a three to two ratio. And that's something actually that pe- people probably don't realise yeah. because as we were just talking about in, the, in the, your, the last answer you gave about that kind of bias towards men in research on mental health mm. and, you know, rightly because, you know, the male suicide rate Absolutely. is terrible and something yeah. that needs to be tackled. Yeah. But I think people will be surprised that there more women are yeah. taking up your services in St. Patrick's. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, in terms of the inpatient admissions, for sure. And I think um, the kind of public narrative where women's voices aren't maybe as heard as much or women's experiences in mental health is sort of mirrored by the individual experiences of women where maybe they're inclined to put other other people first. And we know, for example, that women have greater uh, role demands and do the majority of unpaid caring roles and um, also what we call sort of emotional emotional work mm-hmm. or emotional labour. So that kind of public narrative, I suppose you could see that as sort of mirroring a lot of women's individual experiences. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that something you would have come yeah, across absolutely. in the study? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think as well in terms of like across all of our national surveys on mental health, women consistently report lower mental health rates than men. And there are particular areas, you know, particular areas that we were highlighting, for example, you know, um, there is a 24% more more likely of women um, self-harming in comparison to men. Women also spoke, and it, it was one of the things that we did with the conversations because the Women's Council previously had put 
put together a video of women talking about their experience of mental health. And in that video, there was a story about a postnatal depression. And that's something that came up um, within the conversations that we had in relation to out of silence. And we know that about 16% of women will experience uh, perinatal mental health issues, including postnatal depression. So that's an issue. So particular issues were coming up. But I think, you know, across the board, it was, you know, very much that piece of women feeling a stigma and shame about talking about their own mental health, finding it difficult to access services, particularly for women on low incomes. Um, so if you're reliant on the public health system, it, it's you're on waiting lists. It can be very difficult to then get a counsellor who can be there at the times that you need. For example, you know, women spoke about the fact that service were, services were really only available nine to five, never in the evenings or the weekends. And if you have childcare responsibilities, that can be difficult in terms of childminding. Uh, women also spoke about that within the um, public health system that they were limited to two um, uh, six sessions, and then after that, it will be up to them if they wanted to go um, and pay. So there, there are particular issues. And I think that that cross section of issues in terms of poverty, women on low income and mothers who are parenting alone and and how that impacts on their mental health and then trying to access our public mental health services. And I think throughout the report, it was showing that we're really lacking in terms of investment in our mental health services and in the availability and the accessibility and particularly for women in terms of what's being provided right now. And the report also speaks to the fact that it's actually very important to show that there's a difference between the mental health needs of women and men. What were some of the contributing factors, the specific needs for women? You well, mentioned, of course, uh, postnatal depression, but there are other things as yeah, well. Yeah, dementia w- w- was an issue that came up um, and women were very much concerned about talking about issues of dementia. And then and then the other feature, I think, which was really important, you know, for traveller women or for migrant women, they talked about that double discrimination of both being, being, a, being a woman and then other discrimination that they face. So, you know, some women, for example, um, minority ethnic women spoke about the need to have counsellors maybe who had a better understanding of, of their lives, of their cultures. Um, women, for example, in direct provision, talking about really the need for um, support services, for, for mental health support services to come in very quickly before you even end up in, in direct provision when you arrive in, in Ireland. So so there were, yeah, there were a lot of... Um, I suppose what we say intersectional issues, but it's a combination of issues. But particularly for women, it's that it's that double discrimination that they were talking about in terms of their experiences and the fact that our mental health services really aren't up to to meeting those needs. Mm. And Louise, I wonder, could you speak to this? Because uh, Kitty Holland um, wrote and spoke on this podcast a few months ago about the fact that in some of the poorest areas in Dublin, females are taking their lives at the same rate as men for the first time. And can you explain sort of the significance of that? Sure. It's really it's a really sad uh, trend to, to read about. Um, what we do know is women's mental health is intertwined with the environments and the context in which in which we live. So gender equality issues and social conditions affect women's mental health especially and that's something that the UN and and the World Health Organization would recognise. So we know for example that a lot of the the risk factors that are associated with higher rates of mental health difficulties are experienced more uh, disproportionately by women. So women are more likely to live in poverty, to experience educational disadvantage, um, Women are more likely to have lower status, lower income and more precarious employment. And really significantly, women are more um, likely to experience sexual abuse or assault and domestic violence over their life 
course. Um, and all those things are really uh, strongly associated with mental health difficulties. And the, and it's on the, I mean, that was one issue I think that comes out quite strongly in our report and that's in relation to domestic violence and the real concern for women to talk about their mental health needs and particularly women who are going through um, family courts um, because they're really concerned about talking about their mental health needs in terms of what impact shame, it might have on their children. I think shame is part of that uh, and, and also the, the, the fear of actually that if they speak out, if they say they have mental health issues, that they could actually lose their children yeah, in situations that, like that. That is an enormous fear of, of women and that it came up um, it came up in this report out of silence. It's come up in all of our work in the Women's Council in relation to domestic violence. So, there's, so you've got the shame factor but you also have how women are being treated in terms of our family court system around domestic violence and absolutely women are very afraid of talking about those issues so therefore they're not you know they're not going to get the supports that they need and that are so critical Um, and I think you know it's it shows I suppose the piece that you know Louise has been talking about that wider context that you you can't look at uh, you know the impact on some on a woman's mental health is so determined by that context in which she's in yeah, and her ability then to access services, and also in relation to particular groups of women. I mean, one group, um, one group of women who we spoke to in the conversations were young women, and they spoke about issues of pressure in terms of looking good, of body image, um, and that being a real pressure on them. They also spoke about the pressure of social media being a positive and a negative. And I think that that's actually a very big concern mm. for a, yeah. because we've had a couple of really tragic young female suicides in this country and a lot of it was to do with like things like online bullying so what was there any takeaway from the report on how something like that can be tackled well pr- primarily i mean in the report, what, what women were looking for was better access to services. So there was a real concern that we respond to mental health needs from a medical model and from pres- prescribing medication. And actually what women are saying very clearly is they want therapeutic, they want to be having a conversation with a counsellor and to be talking about their needs. And that needs to be done in, in a very supportive way and one that's easily um, accessible. So that's where the emphasis needs to be very clearly, I think. And yeah, I suppose coming back as well to the the influence as well around social media yeah. and things like that, there was um, a, a study published in August by the Children's Society, the Good Childhood Report. They do it annually and it, it, its cohort is 2,000 children from the age of 10 to 17 across 2,000 families or 2,000 households in the UK. And they had some, some really sad findings around self-harm in particular uh, with, with young women and a greater association uh, of mental health difficulties and worry and self-harm to do with appearance. Other issues were important as well um, around gender stereotypes. Um, one really sad finding they had was that those who believed that boys should be tough and that women should wear, sorry, girls should wear nice clothes were, were the least happy with their lives. Right. Um, and I do think social media is needs more attention. Um, as Orla said, it's, it presents challenges and opportunities. So we know that this generation of young people are growing up with, are sort of inundated with images and comparisons and new sort of markers of popularity in terms of followers and all these kinds of things. But we also know that young people are more likely to seek out support and information for their mental health online. Mm-hmm. So it presents challenges and opportunities. I think we need to definitely need more research because we don't know in the longer term what what's 
as yet what what impacts um, those kind of things have. But we do know that it's a topic that needs more attention. And what kind of services are there for young people online? Because I know we have spunout.ie is a very yeah. good one. Is there other, are there other places? Absolutely. Um, actually, there's one really good campaign that belonged to, I don't know if you saw mm. that, it was launched last week. Um, it's called Better Out Than In. Um, they published a study where they found that 90% of LGBTI youth would would feel that they're struggling with mental health difficulties and that there's a perception that kind of post the, the marriage equality referendum, they should be happier. Mm. Um, so Belong to have responded with this hub of support information to, for, for young people's mental health who are experiencing gender and sexuality issues. Um, there's also... Uh, uh, it, actually, in, in St. Patrick's, we have Walk In My Shoes, which are resources for teachers to download to support mental health awareness. Um, so there, there is lots of different resources and, and supports out there. Um, but yes, Bunite's a particularly, a particularly good one as well. Uh, so this Out of Silence report, when it was launched, it coincided with the first meeting of the Women's Mental Health Network, which is a new collaboration between the National Women's Council and St. Patrick's Mental Health Services. So, Louise, can you tell me, first of all, what are the priorities for this collaboration? The priorities are really to, to promote collaboration and learning for women's mental health um, across professionals, organisations, but also advocates, activists and people with direct experience of mental health difficulties. That's really key to improving services, that the people who use services, uh, that their voice and their experiences are included. Um, So it's fundamentally a networking and information sharing platform at this stage. It's free to join and you can update at any stage. Um, the, the details are on uh, nwci.ie and stpatricks.ie um, and anybody who, who wants any more information can go there and, and contact ourselves for more information. And I think like it's, it's a really important collaboration from our point of view in the Women's Council because where Out of Silence starts is with the voices and the experiences of women and we really wanted to, to I suppose, to, to elevate that and to bring this out in a much more public way and that's why by collaborating and we're really grateful for that with St. With Pat's that, you know, it, it allows us now to, to have a bigger conversation and particularly in terms of what needs to be done. And also, you know, from our perspective in the Women's Council, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, has agreed in this budget to bring together a Women's Health Action Plan and we want mental health to be a key part of that and for far women's experiences to really inform where that goes. So we, we see this as a sort of a vital part of where we go nationally with that Women's Health Action Plan in 2019. Okay, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Louise, Orla, thank you very much for coming into the Women's Podcast. That was Orla O'Connor there of the National Women's Council and St. Patrick's Mental Health Services Advocacy Manager, Louise O'Leary. Now, I talked to Marion Keyes at the International Safe World Summit hosted by Safe Ireland and we talked about her book, This Charming Man, about domestic violence and about a new movement in England that's trying to change the way these incidences are reported by the media. We both got kind of emotional during it because it's a very emotive topic uh, and we only had 14 minutes so we had a lot to pack in. Here we are, Marion Keyes at the International Safe World Summit. Would you please welcome Marion Keyes. Um, we're going to talk about this charming man. Yeah. And you write very, very funny books, which we all know, anyone who's, who's read them in the audience, they're hilarious, but you always tackle big subjects too. And you always leave us as readers 
with things to think about and to look at things from a fresh perspective. So in this Charming Man, why did you want to tackle domestic violence? Um, well, I mean, I'm lucky in that, like, as a, a popular fiction writer um, who also cares passionately about the lot of women, I have a fairly unique opportunity to untangle um, very unpalatable subjects. And I think domestic violence is a subject that people are terrified of. The reason I wanted to write about it was I heard a very decent, good woman um, talk about fundraising for the battered women. And that enraged me because it is such an othering phrase. Um, I think... As women, we are terrified of being a victim of domestic violence. And I think we spend, you know, as a society, we spend a lot of our time trying to um, other the, the victims of domestic violence and also to other the men who do it. Um, you know, there is a T-shirt, there's a vest called a wife beater, which is disgusting, you know, because... It kind of perpetrates this myth that domestic violence is something that only occurs in lower socioeconomic groups, that it occurs only to people who are poor or badly educated. Um, And we think because, you know, we're educated or we are intelligent or we have a strong support network that it will never happen to us and therefore that we don't have to feel any solidarity for those to whom it does happen. I think there's also um, a wish in us as a society, to believe that the women who are victims of domestic violence have almost invited it somehow. And that because we don't invite it, it won't happen to us. So I, you know, because I write popular fiction, I am able to challenge that sort of myth and to say, A, of course it can happen to any one of us, and B, As a society, as a collective, we need to feel solidarity with every single woman whom this issue affects. And tell us about this charming man, the character in it, who's the perpetrator. Because he's very different to what you might in this this terrible stereotype that we have. Yeah, he's he's good-looking, he's a politician, he is educated, and most importantly, he's charismatic. Because that, that word comes up again and again. You know, so many women are trapped in a situation where they are being brutalized or terrified and they try to tell their family or their friends about what this man is doing and they are told again and again, but he's lovely. He's lovely to you. He is so good to you. And they refuse to believe it. You know, the the charisma is a weapon against the woman. Um, So... In this particular book, his name is Paddy de Courcy. He's one of Ireland's most eligible bachelors. And the, the story is about three different women. And they're very ordinary women, you know, and they're not your, like, forgive me, typical victim. Because I wanted to show readers, you know, it can happen to any one of us. We're not immune. And, you know, it doesn't just happen to women on the sidelines. And there's that other thing, almost, that it might be catching. So to even yes. to engage in it is yeah. to kind of invite it in yourself. Absolutely. Um, you know, so many people turn away from the issue rather than face into it, rather than going, it's awful and how can we help? You know, we turn away because it's, it's unpalatable, it's ugly, you know, it's frightening and it's messy. Um, you did a lot of research for the book and yeah. as part of that, uh, something that's become very relevant and, and pertinent these days is course of control. Mm-hmm. You kind of explored all the different ways that uh, women are abused in relationships that are yeah. not just physical. We've heard it here today at, at some length. Yes. 
So what did you find out about that? Well, just that, well, in 92% of cases where a woman is murdered by a partner or ex-partner, it has been preceded by coercive control. And coercive control can take all kinds of forms, like, you know... um, punishing the children for the woman's transgressions, um, locking her in the home when the man goes to work in the morning, leaving her without food, taking away her phone, monitoring her time so that, like, um, the petrol gauge on the car is monitored, the mileage to see that, like, if she said she went to the supermarket, she really only went to the supermarket, Um, checking the time on a supermarket receipt to make sure that, like, when she said she drove straight home from there, that she didn't go off somewhere else, um, checking who she called, doing things like destroying her self-esteem by buying her clothes in a size too small and telling her that she needs to diet her way into them, um, cutting off her, um, her close friendships and her connection with family, you know, by telling her that they're not good for her, or also by making excuses, to, and also by perpetrating this kind of myth that she's hysterical, that she's over-emotional, that she's got mental health issues. Um, there are all kinds of ways that um, a woman's self-esteem is destroyed without actually hitting her. And when I was researching the book, coercive control hadn't been recognised as a, as, as a crime. And um, it has been now in Ireland. It'll come into um, force in January. But um, it came into force in Britain three years ago. And I was just looking at stats. And in the first year... Um, 153 cases were um, prosecuted, which is a very low number, and it resulted in 57 convictions, and 28 men went to jail for it. But subsequently, in the two and a half years since, um, altogether there have been 536 cases prosecuted, 29 out of the 42 um, legal areas, you know, geographical areas in Britain have prosecuted um, uh, the crime. So I think it's something that is that the police force are, have been frightened about because we are so weighted as a society to believe the word of a man over the word of a woman. And so many of these cases are he says, she says cases. And they are not played on a level playing field. You know, any woman that goes into this arena is already carrying uh, you know, a weight, you know, she is not going to be given the same, she's not going to be viewed with the same um, belief that, that a man is going to be. So it's something that is, I mean, it's great that the law has been introduced, but I think it's something that's going to have to be watched and, you know, we're going to have to call out irresponsible reporting on it and we also have to call out irresponsible, as it would seem to us, judgments by the judiciary. Yeah, I'm going to get on to talking about the courts. I mean, just to say, I was having a little coffee across the road yesterday and I just by chance sat down with a load of women who were here at the summit and just for the 10, 20 minutes we spoke, there were all women uh, in various ways going through the courts who had suffered um, at the hands of their partner whose children were suffering. They go to, you know, and we're hearing this all the time, they're going to the courts for help and protection and get thrown in at their most vulnerable to like a quagmire of, you know, put through the ringer really. And just to hear them, I mean, we hear them, you read these stories and it's very easy to kind of move on, but just to sit with these women yesterday, I just, it really struck me. And then you're all here in the audience. I know loads of people in the audience, there they are over there, have have. Ex- experienced um, various things at the hands of partners and, yeah. and, and, and trauma. 
And we need to listen to them because they're the ones. I mean, one of the women I spoke to yesterday has been in court 300 times. Oh, yeah. What is that all about? Like, what's going on? And why are we not up in arms about it? I mean, we just came off the back of the Repeal the Eighth campaign. Yeah. And it incensed so many of us and it, it galvanized this grassroots movement. I really think the next grassroots movement has to be in support and solidarity of those women and all the women yes. in Ireland who need our help. stay silent anymore about this. It's our sisters, our mothers, yes. our colleagues, our friends, and our men daughters. in this want to help us too, because men, most men, don't want to see women treated like this, or put through the ringer in courts. They don't. No. And, I mean, it is very important also to say that the most vulnerable time for any woman um, in an abusive relationship is when she has left or tried to leave, and the man now knows. Um, and to, to leave a woman in the limbo of the court system is leaving her at, like, uh, you know, incredibly vulnerable to violence and death. And the, the legal system is, is in no way protecting women who, are, who have found the courage to, to leave. And I thought um, Luke spoke so well earlier in the panel, earlier was excellent, but as a journalist, you know, I I was really listening closely to what he said. That idea of the why, that's what Susan asked, you know, Mm. the story of the why and what's behind it is something that we, I don't know, it it gets left behind in the kind of sensational... uh, It becomes a gossip story, it becomes a juicy gossip story, it becomes a juicy human interest story, it's entertainment at the lowest common denominator, like, it is... It changes completely. If a woman is murdered by a stranger, it's treated as a serious crime. If a woman is murdered by a partner or an ex-partner, it's treated as a, let's rub our hands together, this is a really juicy gossip story. Let's find out everything. Let's find out how great he was at the GAA. Let's find out how he snapped. Um, But like in any situation, people do not snap. you know, a man who murders a partner or ex-partner, it has always been preceded by violence. These are not random incidents, and we should not be um, absolving the man and, and feeling sorry for him. I mean, a woman has been murdered, and she always becomes collateral in the story. It's always about, let's find out what went on with the poor man that pushed him so far. And it, I mean, it is difficult for me to which was touched on earlier, you know, after Clodagh Hall was murdered, going around to that community, you know, people saying, oh, but he was a very good family man or whatever they said. I mean, that's what people said to journalists. So journalists go back with nothing much else yeah. to, to write about and, and they write it. But I really think, and I know guidelines are just a first step, but yeah. maybe it's not a good idea to talk about or to quote people saying someone's a fine man who just killed their yeah. wife and sons. Like, maybe that's not a good idea. It doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, Level Up, which is um, an organisation which has introduced uh, guidelines called Dignity for Dead Women, um, and they've gone to the Independent Press um, Standards organisation to try and change how um, cases like this are reported. They say that like every time that a murder like this is badly reported, it just it makes it easier for more murders to occur because it's absolving the men. And um, they, they, like, it's, it's seriously, like, irresponsible um, reporting kills women. Like, that's a fact. 
the red lights flashing there. Right. And I think, well, oh. I just think for a final note, I mean, I really mean that. And I know, Marion, you've been such an advocate for women and you use your considerable platform to really good. But can we please look at all the amazing people in this room, yeah. the amazing people listening and, and Safe Ireland and everybody who's putting this stuff together, that we can have solidarity with all those people who are faceless, voiceless, nameless. I happen to bump into a few of you on, for coffee. I'm a journalist. I should know more about it. I don't as much as I should. But we all have responsibility to look after you, to help you, to support you in your fight against what is a really shameful situation shameful. where people are walking into courts who need help more than they've ever needed help in their lives and they are being put through all these loops to jump and, and do all these things and it's just, it's awful. It is. So, I don't know, yes. that's my last word. What's your last yes. word? Yes, no, <laughs> what Roisin said. Yes. <laughs> That was Marion Keyes there in conversation with me at the International Safe World Summit. And thanks very much to Marion and thanks very much to Orla O'Connor and to Louise O'Leary for talking to Jennifer earlier about the Out of Silence report. That's all we have time for in this episode. Remember, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to give us a review, go to iTunes, write down how brilliant you think we are. And of course, tell all your friends about the podcast too. I'm Roisin Ingle and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.